If a new world order is to be built, then those new governance structures need to take account of new behaviour patterns of consumers. Sustainability and better value are what customers are searching for. The recession disrupted consumer behaviour. David Roth, CEO, EMEA and Asia, the store, WPP. Yes, there absolutely is a post-crisis shopping bag. I mean, uh, I think one of the really interesting things about uh, retailers in the recession is uh, because they were so close to their customers, they were the first people really to uh, get what the impact was going to be and to do something about it. So right from the outset, the good retailers have adapted significantly to um, what they need to do, their proposition, the way in which they uh, go to market. And I know that you think there are three stages in this process of really assembling a new business climate within which retailers have to work. I think the speed um, that uh, the financial crisis hit, you know, one, uh, one minute everything was fine, um, and literally the next minute, uh, really, on the sort of the eve of Lehman's uh, collapsed, um, uh, everything came to a juddering halt. And consumers, therefore, went through what we think are sort of three stages. Um, the first stage was sort of acute distress. Uh, the second stage is the stage of acceptance. And the third stage is moving on. We think we are very much now firmly in the acceptance stage. Um, and um, I think it's a bit too early to tell whether, when moving on will actually occur. Bad companies are destroyed by crisis, but good companies survive them. And great companies are improved by them. Trust and recommendation are needed, and new, socially networked consumers will be looking for better and better value propositions. Well, I don't think so. I think, you know, one of the issues with this recession is um, uh, beforehand there were a number of companies who, in a more sort of uh, or less benign environment, probably would have gone to the wall slightly earlier. So what we saw was an acceleration at the beginning of the recession, certainly in the retail space, of a number of very well-known household names um, you know, in developed markets going bankrupt very quickly. Um, and one would say, yes, they were bad companies. Um, but uh, having said that, there are a number of companies that will come out of the recession being significantly stronger and being able to take on the challenges of the new order. And I know that you think that retailers reacted fast and fairly well to the crisis simply because they're very near to their consumers and their customers. Yes, and I think uh, you know, if you're looking for, for lessons out of uh, the, uh, the last couple of years, those businesses who are fundamentally very close to their uh, consumers do have a significant advantage both when times are good and equally as we've just seen when times are bad as well. So, you know, my advice is become as close to your customer as you possibly can do. And, and you say that trust is important but not sufficient. Why won't trust carry a brand through tough times? Well, I think, again, in the old order, um, you know, trust was one of those key metrics that most companies uh, track because they believe that that was uh, an intrinsic part of their psychological uh, contract with consumers. Um, we think now another measure aligned to uh, trust is going to be phenomenally important in this sort of, you know, the interconnected social network world that we now live in, and that's recommendations. So you put those two metrics together, you get a very interesting uh, measure, uh, we call it Trust R, uh, which enables you to mix both the way in which you're trusted and also the way in which you're recommended. The hypothesis being, uh, in this interconnected world, um, not only do you need trust, um, but you also need recommendation. So when will we return to normal? This year, next year, sometime never. The new normal won't be the same as the old 
era of indulgence, but if you present your brand as adding value, you will succeed. Andrew Morgan is president, Diageo Europe. Yes, I think if you um, if you start by uh, just examining uh, what how consumer goods companies were thinking about um, their consumers before the recession, it was a great time. It was boom time, really. The consumers uh, seemed to display an ever ready um, uh, ability to trade up, to spend more and more on premium products, to to look for better quality, to look for more high-status products. And that resulted in in many consumer goods companies um, adopting a strategy that we called premiumization, which was really to to get growth, value growth from their business uh, by actually selling more expensive products rather than spending, uh, selling higher volumes of, of, of product. Now, that all came to a rather nasty end uh, the other day. Uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed uh, because consumers just decided there was too much uncertainty and risk in their lives for them to continue to pay premium prices and buy very expensive products. And so you got the opposite behavior for, for about a year. You got people trading down, people buying, you know, more supermarket own label products, um, uh, yeah, and buying products more for their rational sort of functional benefits and not for more emotional, uh, you know, reasons of brand, classic brand reasons. Yeah. Presenting value in a new light might mean pointing out that a bottle of spirits isn't the same value as a bottle of wine and that you get 20 drinks to the bottle or that to pay four bucks for an espresso is dumb. No, I think, you know, we've got now what, what we call the era of consequences, which is, uh, you know, consumers, they are starting to, to consume more again and to be more free spending, but they're asking themselves a lot more questions about their purchase behavior. They do this uh, subconsciously largely, but it is there. So they're, they're very often asking themselves whether they can justify a purchase, and there are all kinds of criteria that come into play there in terms of, you know, is this something that I really really need? Is it, a, is it a basic day-to-day need, like buying soap or something? Uh, or is it a sort of uh, uh, a low-cost treat every now and then? And I talked about lipsticks being, you know, something that, that women have tended to, to buy to sort of cheer themselves up uh, periodically. And, and, uh, and But then at the far end, you know, there are more major purchases, which are clearly, you know, all about indulgence. And, uh, and we, I think what we're starting to see is that the, in the new norm, is that actually it's far more difficult to persuade consumers to be just purely indulgent, uh, um, particularly you know, with products that are essentially quite functional and, and, and have rational benefits. Now you talked about two campaigns. One was the Coca-Cola one, where they showed caviar for two, you no know, chicken for 20. So it's about value and taking value home to your friends and family. And also the bottle of Gordon's gin, because people regarded as the same as a bottle of wine, but you pointed out a campaign you were involved in at Diageo that, that actually there were 20 glasses to a bottle of gin, so it's much better value than wine. Is that better value the message that needs to get across? 
Yeah, I think the successful uh, companies are those that will understand the complexity of the value message that, that consumers are now looking for. It's not just about price. Um, it, it, it's, it's more of a psychological thing around justification of value, being able to point to the fact that, that, that there are good reasons for buying this product and not the other product. You know, there, there are values at stake here as well. So, you know, green products, products that are, are essentially um, consistent with a sustainability agenda, you know, that's another element of value that is actually playing quite um, heavily on consumers' minds and is part, very much part of the choice that they make when they, when, they, when they pick a brand rather than another one. Back to those bankers and financiers. Crazy-minded bankers have never taken economists seriously, but now they want to know how to spot the next crisis before it comes, says Professor Lord Desai, Emeritus Professor of Economics, London School of Economics. Well, economists have thought in terms of equilibrium because in a very disorderly world, that is a simple way of simplifying and understanding the world. What I'm saying is that, as, at least for practical matters, we have to begin to see the world as perpetually in a dynamic disequilibrium state. And some economists have thought about it. Some economists have theorized about it, Marx and Wicksell and Schumpeter. And we need to revive the tradition because it is equilibrium thinking which gets us into the dilemma that we think problems have solutions which will stay there forever. Why do you think people didn't see the crisis coming? Or perhaps they did and we didn't listen to them because it wasn't fashionable to listen. I think a lot of people saw the crisis coming. I remember saying to somebody that the longer a boom lasts, more people think it will last forever and more likely that it will not last forever. Now, I think people don't want to listen to warnings when the going is good. And so there are warnings. People point out that this is not sustainable as a sustainable situation. And then when the crisis occurs, people say, why didn't you tell us so? And it's no good saying, I told you so. They don't like being told that they were warned and they ignored the warning. Crisis and cycles are reoccurring events. So why can't we spot them before we all get caught out? Desai again. Well, you know, when a going is good, we don't want to know the future. It's the standard standard uh, behaviour everywhere. Of course we should have known that uh, resources are finite. People have been telling us this for 40 years, if not longer. But when we just had, we had 15 years of continuous growth between 1992 and 2007, 15 years is a long enough time period, memories fade of bad time. People think this will go on forever. And while th things go on like that forever, you know, who wants to worry about tomorrow? Now we are regretting our behavior then, so now we're willing to repent. And within that repentance, the next crisis, should we batten down the hatches? I think the next crisis will come. Which way it will come, we cannot predict. That is, that is the beauty of, uh, of the system. But it will come, and then we, some of the things we have done today may help, but completely new things may turn up which we have not prepared for. If we look to our leaders for salvation, in this new world order, who is most likely to produce public policy that actually works and achieves a better and more equitable world in terms of sustainable resources and better governed and more regulated business interests? Will it be economists 
all lawyers. I think really what uh, sparked this off was uh, a remark by a, a renowned and um, a very robust and amusing economist, Willem Buter, who's actually, I think, the, the chief economist at Citibank now, uh, who made a remark about lawyers, which... Uh, uh, indicated that he didn't really think much of lawyers, didn't think they were any good. Um, and it was actually quite a tough comment, but not nearly as depreciatory as many of the comments I've heard. And I was just wondering, in, in, in light of uh, that comment, because according to my count, um, 53% of the uh, U.S. Senate uh, are uh, lawyers. In Sarkozy's uh, initial cabinet, nine out of 16 of them were lawyers, including Sarkozy himself. And if you look around world leaders, there are quite a few of them who had a legal training, uh, including Putin, Medvedev, of course Obama, of course Clinton, of course Blair, and quite a few more. And so it just seems to be an interesting question as to whether if lawyers were this bad, were they in fact in control of the world and who was actually ruling it? Was it them or was it someone else? That was Dr Philip Wood. QC, Special Global Counsel, Allen and Overy, LLP. He's a lawyer, but he comes down firmly on the side of the economists as better policymakers. He points out Obama, Clinton, Blair and Sarkozy are lawyers, but Brown and Merkel are economists. I think, I think my take on this is that actually, in terms of who's making the, the big policy decisions about what happens in the world, it's economists. I mean, the really important decisions are in, the, in credit economies we live in the moment are actually fiscal decisions. They're decisions about the future, which tends to be seen in terms of numbers and metrics and formulae. And I think economists have got great power. They've got great ability to, because they're uh, experimental, they're pragmatic, they follow a scientific uh, method. They have got absolutely tremendous conviction, which I find amazingly impressive. And so I think actually the lawyer even though they think they're in charge, they are not, in fact, in charge. It's the economists. Has it a guess, Philip Wood, on, on where our global futures lie? Clearly, you think would be safer with the economists. Um, well, as, as a matter, well, of course, I'm biased. I think we'd be much safer if lawyers could learn, you know, learn a bit more about economics and economists could learn a bit more about law. I think we'd both benefit enormously from our different disciplines because one of them is very qualitative and the other is quantitative. And I think the combination would be really good. We might then get somewhere. And in that way, we might actually avoid this blind, terrible charioteer who we think may be our terrible destiny. CBAM did predict the crash, and now its global business symposium, the world order after the crisis 2010, has brought academics, policymakers and business together to chew over problems and eventually to deliver solutions. It won't be a quick road to recovery, but it may be a slow, more equitable one. And when historians come to look back at the milestones on that road to recovery, they'll have full access to Cambridge Judge Business School's Cadbury Archive on Social Corporate Responsibility. That's a story worth telling. Mm -hmm.